Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. This is Politico's Nerdcast. I'm your host, Scott Bland. Coming up this week, a surprising figure coming forward in the impeach Trump movement, a Republican, and no one seems happy about it. We'll talk about that. Plus, I sit down with some of Politico's national political reporters to talk about 2020 campaign strategies from the wide, wide, wide Democratic primary field. These strategies are all over the place. They're in all sorts of different states. We're going to dig into all of them coming right up. Just a heads up, we're taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday, May 23rd, so it's all up to date as of then. All right, let's get started. I want to welcome the guest for our first segment, Tim Alberta, chief correspondent for Politico magazine. Hello, Tim. Hello, Scotty. And Tim is the perfect person to walk us through some of the drama currently unfolding between conservative hardliners on the Hill. The data point for our first segment is one, and that is the number of Republicans in Congress who have come out and called for President Donald Trump's impeachment. And that congressman is Congressman Justin Amash of Michigan. And... As a result of this, he's embroiled in a uh, big, uh, probably growing, I think would be fair to say, uh, a fight with a lot of the folks who have been his closest allies on the Hill, the, the Freedom Caucus. Uh, and this is all happening, of course, against the backdrop of the Democrats trying to figure out what they're going to do about impeachment. So, Tim, get us started here. Who is Justin Amash? Well, Scott, it's so appropriate that you and I would be sitting down to have this conversation because you've been teasing me for years, uh, going back to our time <laughs> together at National Journal, because I was always sort of enamored of Justin Amash as a lawmaker. This is a guy who, since coming to Congress in the 2010 Tea Party wave, really distinguished himself, even from those fellow Tea Party members, as someone who was either one of two things. He was either completely off the reservation and, and totally nuts, or he was really just that committed to principle. And I think for most of his first four, five, six years in Congress, the majority opinion on Capitol Hill was the former, that this guy's just nuts, that he's insane, that he's trying to make a statement, that he's just out there voting against everything and anything uh, for, for reasons of self-promotion, et cetera, et cetera. Only when we elected a Republican president did Amash's sort of very principled, limited government view, uh, I think, become validated in the minds of a lot of people. Really came into focus. Came into focus, yeah, because look, let's be honest, most of the folks who came in in that 2010 Tea Party class, they have shown themselves to be less than fully committed to those principles of smaller government than when they came in, in 2010, accusing Barack Obama of bankrupting the country. And I think what's been interesting to see is that Amash, arguably more so than any other member of Congress, has been very consistent whether there's been a Democratic president or a Republican president. And in fact, I remember having this conversation with the former speaker, John Boehner, who always called Amash sort of a knucklehead and a troublemaker. And 
we were having this conversation last summer and he said, you know, give the guy credit. Maybe he wasn't as crazy as we all thought he was all along. This is a guy who's been the one in a lot of 434 to one votes in, in the House of Representatives in the, in the what, eight, the eight years that he's, uh, he's been there up to this point. Uh, and so, you know, okay, so you've kind of talked us through his, uh, his, his origins. He's libertarian. He's on the Hill. 2015, founding member of the Freedom Caucus, the, this group that really uh, felt like the the Republican Party, or at least in their founding statement, that the Republican Party was getting unmoored from these conservative principles, wanted to pull things back. 2019, Justin Amash no longer a member of the Freedom Caucus. What happened there? So I think what's interesting is that this probably says a lot more about the Freedom Caucus than it does about Justin Amash. And what I mean by that, Scott, is that the Freedom Caucus really came into existence with a belief that the Republican Party and its leadership was not sufficiently ideologically pure, and they were not sufficiently tactically aggressive. Uh, In other words, they believed that they needed to form this sort of smaller, nimbler block of legislators who were anti-establishment, who could work and operate as a unit in an attempt to uh, check the excesses of of not only the Democratic Party and not only of the executive branch, but of their own party. These guys sort of built this organization on this idea that nobody in Washington is able to stand up to the party establishment on their own. Therefore, we need a block of 30 or 35 members to do it together, have strength in numbers. What's been really interesting during the era of Trump is to watch as the Freedom Caucus has transformed from this anti-establishment entity into arguably the most pro-establishment entity on Capitol Hill. They have served as sort of the Praetorian Guard of this president since he was sworn in in January of 2017. And Amash has never been comfortable with that. I would say that in that Freedom Caucus group, really the three guys who were never comfortable with it were Mark Sanford, Raul Labrador, and Justin Amash. And of course, Sanford is gone. He lost his primary. Raul Labrador is gone. He ran for governor and lost. So Amash is sort of the last man standing. And it's not terribly surprising that after having come out and and said that he believes that President Trump has met that evidentiary bar to begin impeachment proceedings, that the group would turn on him because the group is extremely loyal to President Trump in no small part because President Trump is so overwhelmingly popular in their congressional districts back home. I'm curious what what you think uh, happens next here. First, I mean, uh, first of all, Amash, he he's not going to be swayed by any of this, right? I think as as he's made clear, you've made clear in 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 describing him. Um, but I mean, as as you alluded to, the 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 folks kind of w- within certainly um, the conservative movement in elected office in, in uh, among elected Republicans who haven't felt comfortable with Donald Trump have either self-selected themselves out of elected office or have been pushed that way right in the case of in the case of Mark Sanford and so you, so what happened what happens now you for know Amash? It's, it's it's interesting i sat with amash a few months after uh, donald trump was inaugurated president and i said to him are you because he had been tweeting quite a bit during the campaign, during the transition, and then in the early months of the Trump presidency, Amash had been tweeting quite a bit. And I think probably next to Sanford and Flake, he'd been you know one of the most outspoken members of the Republican Party on Capitol Hill in criticizing Trump. And I asked him at the time, I said, so what are you going to do if he comes after you in a primary challenge? And Amash said, well, I'm, I'm going to win. I'm not, I'm not worried about it. And that was, of course, well before we saw the likes of Flake go down and, and Sanford go down. And so... 
Amash has this very unique following out in West Michigan in the 3rd District where he hails from. Uh, He comes from an independently wealthy family. He has a lot of uh, deep ties to the area, has a lot of very strong uh, connections with the donor community there, although he just lost one very prominent donor, uh, which I'm sure we were going to get to, the DeVos family announcing this week that they will no longer support Justin Amash. The DeVos family, of course, including the Secretary of Education. One Secretary of (laughs) Education, Betsy DeVos. But, But Amash... I would argue, is probably in a stronger position to withstand uh, the sort of backlash that took out guys like Flake and Sanford, if only because Amash has had a a target painted on his back for years. Uh, In fact, in 2014... The Republican establishment nationally and in Michigan came after him. They, you had members of the Michigan delegation on Capitol Hill organizing uh, on behalf of their colleague's primary challenger, which is absolutely unheard of on Capitol Hill. You had the Speaker of the House sort of winking and nodding at this guy, and Amash still beat him by double digits. Mm-hmm. So Amash is is a pretty canny politician. He does a lot of town halls. He has this very, again, this very unique connection with his constituents back home. So I don't know that Trump coming after him on Twitter and funneling his support to a primary challenger is going to be sufficient. See, I'm very curious to see what happens with that because I think you and I have talked about this before. One of the one of the many uh, things that people expected to happen in 2016 that didn't happen was there was this long-running fight between the, the two wings of the Republican Party, right? You had the kind of establishment, business-oriented, Chamber of Commerce-type uh, wing of the party, and then you had like the Tea Party uh, wing of the party that, that's personified in this 2014 primary challenge uh, against Amash that, that we were just talking about is that that same divide. And then Trump comes in and and wins the nomination and wins the presidency and he doesn't come from either side of the party and he like takes a little bit here and there from both of them and also a lot from just out of left field. And so it's like this big fight was almost put on hold and just subsumed by, by, by Trump kind of like taking taking it over and I, I I just wonder what that means for you know the the, the those dynamics in Amash's district having having watched him face a challenge before and what what's what's going to be different and what's going to be the same this time it's such a great question Scott because uh, I think something that has gone somewhat underappreciated is the fact that look for six years we spent a lot of time and spilled a lot of ink on this notion of a Republican civil war. And it was a very real thing going back to that 2010 election. There was this bloodletting in the post-George W. Bush uh, years where there was a real fight for control of the party between that anti-establishment insurgent wing and between sort of the party elite. And what's really interesting is that, yeah, Amash survived in 2014 when it was still that sort of symmetrical warfare as we knew it at that point with, with the chamber and some of those big money organizations uh, that, are, that are affiliated with the party establishment coming after him. And Amash had help from the Club for Growth and from Heritage and from some of those usual suspects on the right. What we've seen now is really a redrawing of the battlefield. And it has much less to do with ideology than it has to do with a very simple question. Are you with Trump or are you not with Trump? And as we saw in 2018, the president has no qualms about going after members of his own party, even if that means costing him and his party seats. Remember, he celebrated the day after the election about Jeff Flake having lost his Arizona seat, even though it was a pickup for Democrats. So what I said a minute ago, though, is is still true. I don't know that Michigan 3 is going to be 
such a heavily Trump district to where just Trump's opposition to Amash would tip the scales. I think that there would need to be something much more organic from the ground up there. And from what we've seen over the last eight years, that's going to be hard to do because Amash is just this sort of singularly effective politician in representing that part of the state. Mm -hmm. And then I I think uh, given everything we've just discussed, this probably goes without saying, but uh, this is not, this doesn't seem to me to be like a, a drip drip situation where it's like, oh, the dam has suddenly broken now on Republicans coming out and breaking with Trump. Uh, Amash is very much, this is a a singular person making a singular act. Yes, Amash is a cautionary tale here for a lot of other congressional Republicans. And I think the reason that Amash is comfortable going out on this limb is precisely because of what we were just talking about, the fact that he has withstood a primary challenge before because he's got this very, very interesting and unique standing in his district and, and, and a really strong base of support back home. So Amash is, I, I think, a guy who is almost um, supernaturally uh, insulated from the sort of blowback that almost any other member of Congress would get. And that's not to say that Amash can't lose. He certainly could. You could see a really well-orchestrated, well-financed effort to take him out in next year's primary. But I think he is probably on a firmer footing here than almost any other member of the House of Representatives, at least that I can think of. And I followed Amash and all of his his guys pretty closely over the years. And nobody, I think, has quite the standing back home, uh, at least in terms of an, an, a sort of an understanding between himself and his constituents. Even a lot of folks who don't agree with the votes he takes, they really like and respect the fact that he engages them, that he's very transparent with his explanations of all these votes. So he's just this very interesting member of Congress, a very unique member who I think can probably get away with things that no other member could. I think we're about to find out. (laughs) Yes, we are. All right. Well, Tim, thank you so much for joining us to to explain all all this to us. It's been kind of an interesting and and shocking week, even as as, uh, things go in this this political era. Even by the swamp standards. And I should mention, Scotty, on the way out that uh, Justin Amash gave me a pretty explosive interview about all of these things that we were just discussing. And it will be published in my book, which is coming out in July. It's called American Carnage. And it'll get a lot of headlines, I think, for a lot of reasons. But Amash's comments on the Freedom Caucus and on his former comrades, uh, I think, will raise some eyebrows. I can't wait. I can't wait to read that. It's going to be it's going to be interesting. That makes one of us. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Tim. Thank you. And listeners, if you haven't had enough of Tim, you should make sure to check out the Off Message podcast. He's the host and he has an episode on the trail with Democratic candidate Kirsten Gillibrand coming out soon. All right. Let's dive into our second segment. And we're going to go on the road for this one. We're going to be talking about a lot of candidates who have been on the road. And we're going to talk to two of our reporters who have been on the road with them, uh, two Politico national political reporters on the line. First, Natasha Karecki. Natasha, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And David Siders back again. David, thank you. Good to be here. All right. So the two of you just came together to write this big breakdown of the campaign strategies in the Democratic presidential field. Big, big story for Politico. I'd love to just break it down candidate by candidate, but that would be like a two day long episode. So let's let's kind of jump in and talk about some big takeaways here. Um, uh, David, let's let's start with you. You've been in Iowa this week with Beto O'Rourke. He's signaling and, you know, you guys have written a few different times about this, that, that this is a must-win state for him. But who really needs to bring it home in Iowa? And what are what are they doing to make sure that it happens? And, and Natasha, feel free to jump in here, too. Well, it, I, I think that the Beto is like a lot of candidates who aren't, um, you know, they need a breakout. They don't necessarily, I don't think most candidates need to win 
in Iowa, but they need to do well there to to go forward. I, you know, Natasha wrote this morning that it's it's not a state that um, what do you call it? it doesn't pick the winners; it picks the losers. Mm. Uh, and so I think that's that's really what everybody's confronting in Iowa. Correct me if I'm wrong, Dave, but I don't think we found a campaign aside maybe from Biden. I don't think we found a campaign that said we absolutely have to win Iowa. I mean, everyone's kind of looking to place. Like they they just need to show. Mm-hmm that they're not going to fall apart after this, that there's some, there's something to them. There's, there's people like, people like them. Um, there's something to them um, <laughs> that's going to allow them to go on um, in the rest mm. of the country. So, you know, all, all of these, you know, the, the, the chicken loopers and the bullocks and the swallows, I mean, all of them, if, if they get completely snuffed out in Iowa, then they're, they're, they're done. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, you know what? You know who does need to win Iowa is, is Delaney. Yeah, right. <laughs> you're right. And that's uh, that's former Maryland Congressman John Delaney. For those of you who uh, who have not been following his uh, now coming on two year quest for the the presidency, uh, be almost three by the time he gets to. Uh, or by the time we get to the Iowa caucuses. And now, when, when you guys say place, you're talking about some, something in the top three in Iowa, right? Some, something that's going to generate a little bit of online fundraising the night of, a little bit of excitement, a, a, a boost heading into New Hampshire, which is what, a, a week, uh, two weeks later? Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, I should just go back that to your point about generating excitement. I think Iowa is all about not, not winning, but like Natasha says, that getting in the top. But it's also about overperforming expectations. Mm-hmm. So while I joked about the former congressman, if, if he were to place, say, in fourth in Iowa or fifth or seventh, I, I mean, if he overperforms his expectations, all of a sudden there would be excitement around him. And then if you look at somebody like Joe Biden, if Biden comes in fourth in Iowa, well, that's people will be writing about significant concerns. And I think one, you know, one lesson from, from Beto is, is something about expectations. And, you know, Beto's polling pretty close to where Buttigieg is at, at the moment right now. He's a little bit behind him. But nobody's writing about Buttigieg's fall because Buttigieg didn't go on Vanity Fair and have a huge, <laughs> you know, he didn't raise the bar. So I think that's the same thing going on in, in these early states. And and yeah, New, New Hampshire is a little bit more, maybe more of a regional uh, primary than Iowa. Uh, first of all, it's a primary, but then you have these two behemoths out there, uh, Warren and, and Sanders, who probably do really have to do well there to have any credibility. Mm-hmm. And then from there, um, you know, I, I feel like the, those two states, and I think with good reason, they get the lion's share of uh, the attention in terms of the the early expectation settings obviously they go first right that said um there is uh, there is a fair bit of attention already on on south carolina and you guys are talking about you know expectations and being and there there's there's kind of a different twist on the expectations game in south carolina for a lot of different candidates right it, it that 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 state is important uh for different reasons to a lot of different people right that's right um you know, and as we laid out today, you know, we think, especially Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, um, both of whom are going after the African American electorate, um, Joe Biden, and Bernie Sanders, and 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 for different reasons for all of them, um, perhaps uh, you know, Bernie Sanders. This is where, this is where he got pummeled in 2016, a 47 point loss to Hillary Clinton, and um, you know, it, it's a sign of weakness with African American voters and. Um, if you can't, if you if you can't show that you have some strength again, he doesn't have to win. If you can't, but you have some credible strength with the African American electorate, which is so important nationally. Um, and this is the first test of it in South Carolina, the first 
Southern primary, um, then, then, you know, how can you, how can you prove that you can build support across the country? Um, so Sanders has changed up some things that he's done last time. Um, well, first of all, in all of these states, uh, he, he has a running start, not just with name ID, but he has this lengthy list of identified supporters um, from last time. I mean, we're talking 20,000 people. Um, in, in Iowa, it was 25,000 people. Um, viability is at 15%. He, it, it's, a, it's a turnout the same, uh, which it won't be, but if it's similar to what it was in 2016, <laughs> he's almost at 15% viability with just walking in the door, um, mm-hmm. assuming all these people stick with him. But anyway, so I mean, these are people who are part of his army in 2016. They're sticking. A lot of them are sticking with him. Um, but he's also just sort of very <laughs> cognizant of the fact that he needs to make inroads with African-Americans. And then you have Booker, who is really riding on South Carolina. He's been here six times already since he announced in February. Wow. And that's, yeah, it's a lot compared to any other candidate. It's also a lot for him. But I mean, it's clear just looking at, and that's part of what we looked at, was just, you know, where where have these candidates traveled? Um, you know, how much have they staffed there? How much, you know, what kind of resources are they putting in there? And, um, yeah, certainly that's, uh, that, that was a sign with Booker. Yeah, but the Booker thing is interesting. I was actually looking at some of the, the data from the Politico Morning Consult poll the other day, which has these huge sample sizes, and so you can really drill into things a little bit. And even for some of the candidates who aren't getting much support, you can kind of drill down and, and, and take a closer look at where it's coming from. And Booker at this point is drawing the most disproportionate share of his total support from African Americans so far, even more than Kamala Harris, who's also targeting African American voters and, and, and is, you know, um, running a historic candidacy, but uh, but but Booker Booker's supporters are are, are disproportionately uh, black, and so at, at that point you can see why you know I, Iowa and New Hampshire might not hold a lot of promise for him, but he might still be able to make a stand in in South Carolina. Uh, David, I'm curious, and, and and Natasha as well. After after you go, David, I'm curious what what did, what did you find most surprising when you were digging into the different campaign strategies uh, to to pull this story together? You know what really surprised me actually was that um, was that Joe Biden had done so little in Iowa. I mean, here's a guy mm-hmm. who like you know he has this narrative that he he got killed there twice and he couldn't get you know one percentage point in in 2008. Um, and and, I, and I'm going through and I'm looking at all the, the staffing and when he announced his candidacy, the South Carolina staff was announced within hours. And I just assumed he couldn't find the email or something with it with the Iowa supporters, and it turned out he hadn't seen anyone <laughs> yet. And um, so I'm kind of pressing the campaign last week, like, what is going on? Why don't you have? Why haven't you announced an Iowa staff? Um, and you know, and I learned some things that there was there was a little bit of you know some misfires and, and hires and stuff there. Um, but I, I kept plugging them, and then like later Friday, late Friday, there was something appeared in the Des Moines Register with Biden announces Iowa staff. Um, so it, 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 <laughs> he just did it. Um, he's visited once. He did do four events. Um, uh, but it's you know he's he's going to really have to ramp up quickly. I mean, you look at the you look at Beto's of all of these town halls. Elizabeth Warren is just like killing everyone with organization. Booker has a really good mm-hmm. organization in Iowa. I mean, he 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 has to take it seriously. He can't just like ride on his name ID. And I, he he has indicated that he wouldn't. But so far, we haven't seen evidence of that. 
Mm-hmm. That's yeah. That's that's a really interesting point. I'm I'm especially curious to see what uh, what this huge staff investment that that Warren makes uh, does for her. Not just in Iowa, but but you know Iowa's the first the first place where we could see it, right? And I think uh, latest where I I don't know, remember whether it's 50 people or 70 people, and and you know certainly probably a, a large number of unpaid volunteers uh, on top of that. And uh, it's it's interesting. And we've written a few times. Uh, on Politico about how this is kind of one of the what uh, one of the big early bets of the campaign in terms of financial stuff, right? Like da- like David mentioned, it's going to take a while for us to to see where the the most expensive part of a campaign is the TV ads, right? And so that's not going to start for a while, and that's where we really get to know where people are putting their money. But but Warren's spending a lot of money on staff already, and that's that's a really interesting. It's it's really interesting to watch that strategy develop on the front end, and I'm so curious to see where it goes on on the back end. Right. I, 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 and I think, again, it goes back to what David had said about the expectations game. So, um, you know, so Warren, you know, in a lot of these candidates, likes sort of hovering, in, you know, staying in the middle somewhere. You know, don't, don't make expectations too high. So if I, you know, if you, if you do well, you're a good narrative out of the night. Um, and that's what she's kind of hoping, like, just completely flood, you know, just completely flood the state with, with, with her people um, but sort of in a quiet way, in an understated way, so you're not you're not shooting up in the polls too much that you do well that day, and that's that's what she's sort of banking on. But likewise, if she does not do well in Iowa after all of that investment, then that's going to be really telling for her campaign. Mm-hmm. All right, listen, guys, thank you so much for for taking the time to talk through this. Uh, it's uh, it's going to be an, an exciting nine months, right? I guess the, 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 we're 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 really homing in on on when we get to know some of the answers to these questions now. Thanks for um, having us. Yeah, Natasha, thank you mu- so much for, for being here. David, thank you as well. Thank you. And as always, a big thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in this week. We are going to hand things over to one of those listeners to help us out with the credits. Tim Hodgson from Furlong, Pennsylvania. Take it away. Nerdcast is produced by Michaela. Dave Shaw is the executive producer. And their illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, rate the show and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thank you, Tim. Listeners, if you want to read the credits, shoot us an email at nerdcast at politico.com. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week.